Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 reads, Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. We're going to talk about faith in no uncertain terms today. Recently, I read, was reading a ministry magazine from the Voice of the Martyrs. I read an account of a pastor from the Central Asian nation of Kazakhstan. And uh, this fellow, Kazakhstan, again in Central Asia, was part of the old Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union fell apart in the early 90s, uh, Kazakhstan went through a lot of changes. Unfortunately, religious freedom was not one of those changes. Um, Ethnic Kazakhs are expected by their government to be Muslim. And long about 2011, 2012, there were a series of laws passed that made it really illegal to be a part of any unregistered religious organization or to share the gospel, either personally or in literature, of any kind. Uh, This particular pastor that I was reading about was arrested in Kazakhstan for a whole laundry list of offenses, most of which really just boils down to his sharing the gospel of Jesus. This guy was in his late 60s, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And a part of that sentence of his 10 years in prison was to be served in a mental institution. And this is kind of a holdover from the old Soviet Union. In the Soviet days in Russia, if you were arrested for being a Christian because you were proselytizing, sharing the gospel, or you had an underground church somewhere, they would routinely put you into a mental institution because they regarded, as some of uh, um, modern atheists still do, that a belief in God is a mental disorder that they can treat by giving you medication and they'll medicate you and put you in the middle and try and fix your brain so that you no, no longer believe in God. Anyway, um, prisoners there are drugged, causing them to lose the abilities to think or even move sometimes. This uh, older man was concerned about losing his mind. And the pastor said he wasn't afraid to die, but he wa- didn't want his grandchildren to see him in that condition. Understandably, you know, one of the things you realize as you get older that we have very little. What we have to offer is very, very limited. And one of the things we want to protect at all cost is the opportunity to be an example in the way that you live and to live out in our actions the truth of what we believe. This becomes very important for the benefit of your loved ones and the people around you. As you see the finish line off in the distance, you want to have a witness of Christ in your life. You can understand this pastor is filled with some dread as the day approached for his transfer from the prison where he's being held to the psychiatric ward. And before he left, he received a visit from a good friend of his, a brother in Christ, a pastor. And this gentleman had tears in his eyes as he told his friend, this is probably the last time that I will ever talk to you in my right mind. And his friend replied to him, where is your faith? which kind of shocked me as I was reading it. I mean, I don't know that I would have been able or would have felt inclined to speak to this man in that way. Where is your faith? The man's in prison for his faith. He's being shipped off to some, to be drugged at some house of horrors. I could understand encouraging him or directing him to be confident in the Lord, but where is your faith? 
And then, but it really kind of jarred me to really think about it. You know, it, it was this guy in the flesh. It was the Holy Spirit leading him in this situation. And I was thinking about Jesus' situation in the Gospels. I thought about Jesus meeting with the disciples of John the Baptist as they came to him saying, are you the one or do we look for somebody else? But it's really different because Jesus wasn't talking to John. He wasn't talking to the guy in prison. But then I thought about Jesus' words in the Gospel of Mark chapter 4, verse 37. At the end of Mark chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples are on the Lake of Galilee on a particular evening. They're crossing the lake at night. And in Mark 4.37, a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And then he arose and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm, which of course is enough to like ruin your life right there. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? He was disturbed at these guys at their response to the situation. Well, I mean, they were fearful because they thought they were going to die. And these are not just average people. Some of these guys are fishermen. They should know the difference between a, wow, this is a little rough and my gosh, we're going to die. It seems reasonable, doesn't it? However, Jesus does not call us in our lives to follow what we understand to be reasonable. And that's important. Jesus expected these men to have a confidence, really an unreasonable confidence. Rational confidence would be, okay, the boat's going under. It's time for us to freak out. Because there actually is a time to freak out. It's nice to be calm under pressure, but there is a time when you need to flip out. You know, and when that happens, you need to do it. Jesus is looking for something more from the people that follow him, something not normal to people of this world. Again, listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus is looking for something unnormal, okay? Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Does Jesus really want us to hate people, especially the people of our family? Is that really what the gospel is all about? Go home and hate my family. No, that's not it. He's trying to make a point. He wants me to think about this. He doesn't want me to read it and say, well, I don't know what that means. What's next? He wants me to think about this. Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. He's trying to get me to think about these issues. Folks, this war that you have been dropped into the middle of, because if you're a believer in Christ today, you're standing in the middle of a war, okay? It is not a polite conflict of orderly opposition. This is a life and death struggle where thousands upon thousands of your spiritual family have already physically perished in a world of cruel and horrific violence. Now, I know you don't see that. You didn't know the five people in 1560 that were burned at the stake in Little Park, Coventry in London because they taught their kids the Lord's Prayer in English. You didn't know them, but they were people just like you. And a million, millions of others 
in so many ways. And this is the reality, the truth of what it means to be a Christian. We live in a Christian Disneyland. We really do. And it is hazardous to our health in more ways than we really understand. We are the followers of Jesus Christ. When we forget that or some part of it, we start to have expectations of our lives that are very different than God's expectations. And that's dangerous. We start to have designs upon this present world's situation that are in some ways, maybe lots of ways, contrary to God's purpose for us. God remembers what his purpose for us is. We, on the other hand, can be distracted and even confused concerning God's purpose from time to time. What is God's purpose for us? Very simple, isn't it? It is very simple. God wants us to be with him. We call this walking in faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Notice that. Impossible. Exclusive. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, point one, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him diligently. Now, if you believe something, it's going to show up in the way you live. It's going to show up in the way, like, you believe that if you run indiscriminately across Colorado Boulevard, you're liable to have a problem. Without looking, with a blindfold on, go. You are not going to do that, most likely. Because you believe something about running across Colorado Boulevard with a blindfold on. Okay? Do you believe that seeking God diligently will result in a reward in your life? You know, it would be great if you could just say things and they would be true. Like in the song we sang this morning, I, I surrender all. I think you all sang, or most of you, there were a couple of you who didn't sing, so I guess you knew. You know, so I, I can't say that. Um, I surrender all. Or, you know, if you, when you sing, I worship you, O Lord, you know. So often people who are singing, worship you, I worship you, O Lord, are thinking, what's up with this guy next to me? I worship you, O Lord. It's his problem. Wow. Um, Unfortunately, it doesn't, whatever we say, whatever comes out of our mouth doesn't manifest in reality in our lives. I mean, I can say I have faith in God. It doesn't mean I do. Mark chapter 11, verse 22 said, Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. It's a command. We need to do it. He didn't say act like you have faith in God or pretend you have faith in God. Or especially when you're at church around other people, make sure that everything you do looks like you really have faith in God. I believe that God blesses those who diligently seek him. I'm probably going to do something about it. You know, folks, whenever we talk about faith, because of the circumstance of our current day, we need to be very specific because there is a huge movement in the church and around the church and around the world, unfortunately, that has terribly twisted the idea of biblical faith, making it into this distorted kind of supernatural power that operates at human discretion and works independently of God's purpose and his will in the scripture. And that is not biblical faith. And it, it, unfortunately, it's, it's a lie from hell. The book of Lamentations asks us a question, chapter 3, verse 37. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is nobody. 
Nobody speaks and it comes to pass if the Lord has not commanded it. This heresy is called the word faith movement. And it is the corruption of so many of the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus that in fact it qualifies as another gospel. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of earthly wealth and health and prosperity, which is foretold by us in the book of First Timothy, chapter six, verse five. Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourselves. Even this past Tuesday, and you can you can hear this heresy on every Christian radio station at different times. Christian television is overrun by it. And there are huge churches in everywhere from coast to coast that promote this heresy. I grew up in a church as a Christian. I was born again in a church that taught this heresy. And it took me years to extricate myself. I was driving to church one Thursday night to a midweek Bible study with 103 fever, telling God I was perfectly healthy. And he stopped me in the middle of the street. I stopped my car in the middle of the road. And God said, why are you lying to me? And I said, I don't really know. <laughs> but it got my attention. It still took me a long time to get out. And it's a, it's a, it's a tragic and terrible thing. This week, Tuesday, we talked to Vincent and Melissa Aniku from Midigo, Uganda on the radio. And they were sharing that this Heresy is rampant in Africa. It's everywhere. And I remember back in the 70s, we used to say, oh, yeah, these guys, Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagin and Fred Price, they should all go to Africa and preach this. Well, that wasn't a good idea because it caught on over there. And actually, there are huge churches all over in Africa where you can show up and ask for prayer and they will pray for you if you pay them. If you pay them money, they will then pray for you. Because that's how the doctrine works out in their thinking. It's horrific. It just, it, it, it's crazy. They twist the scriptures in terrible ways. For instance, the tail end of Romans 14.23 says, Forever, whatever is not of faith is sin. And they will use this scripture, this part of the scripture, to discourage people from being critically minded concerning the things they teach. Well, you know what you taught? It just didn't seem quite right. Well, wait, whatever's not a faith is of sin. You can't, you can't let your mind go there because you're in sin if you do. If you criticize or look critically mindedly at the things I shared, you're out of whack, which is a lie from hell. Again, the Bible encourages us to be critically minded. I don't ever have to be afraid of the truth. I don't have to ever be afraid of being critically minded. In fact, Acts 17, 11, Luke writes by the Holy Spirit that the Christians in the city of Berea were more noble than the Thessalonians. Why? Because they didn't trust the Apostle Paul. Because they listened to him and then they went off by themselves and they searched the scripture to see if he was saying was actually true. They were critically minded. And so should you do with every Bible study you ever hear. Examine it. Compare it with what the Bible teaches. And make certain that what you're hearing and what you're understanding is Led and directed by the Holy Spirit. It's a good thing. There are all kinds of scriptures that are regularly misused and abused by these hucksters to promote their distortions. And some of the people who teach these things are sincere. Some of them are liars and they know 
that they're ripping people off and they're in it only for money. Some of them may really believe the things that they're sharing and they're just caught in the trap that they're luring other people into. Mark eleven twenty four, one of their favorite scriptures. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. And they take that scripture, just that one scripture by itself and say, see, this is the promise. Pray believing. There's a problem with that. You can't make yourself believe stuff. I can pray for your healing. I cannot make myself believe. I can pretend to make myself believe that you're going to be healed. And then if you don't, it's your fault. Where's your faith, brother? Seriously, this is the way it works. It's, it's horrific. I cannot make myself believe. That verse is a reference to something that is called the gift of faith. And it has to work in conjunction with the rest of Scripture. For instance, 1 John 5.14. This is the confidence we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And we know that if He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we will have the petitions we have asked of Him. In other words, when God listens to my prayer, He filters it through whether it's according to His, His will. Now, you may not know this or not, but when you say at the end of your prayer, in Jesus' name, that's what you're doing. You're asking for God to line your prayer up with His will. In other words, when I say in Jesus' name, I'm saying this is the way that Jesus would pray if He was addressing this issue. And God, if I'm wrong, you fix it. Make it right. The gift of prayer, we find, or rather the gift of faith, we find in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gift of healings of the same Spirit. And you see this at work in the body of Christ. When you get this crazy idea to pray for this ridiculous thing, and somehow or another, you get this idea that if you pray, God's going to do it. And so you start to pray, and it happens. And that's, that's you get credit for that. You know, it's not you. It's God's gift at work through your life. When we talk about faith, we net recognize one scripture is going to differ from another in the context of the subject of the particular book. And these things have to be considered. It's really not that complex. But generally speaking, when we refer to biblical faith, we are talking about an obedient inclination and attitude and response to the revealed word of God. The action and understanding of faith always points us back to the scripture. When someone tells you, yeah, I just stepped out in faith and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. My response should be, okay, well, show me in the Bible how your action is in response and agreement to God's word. And this is one of the, the many reasons that we need to be so attached to the scripture and everything that we do. Christians believe in a thing that we call justification by faith. Okay, That is, we are accepted into the family of God under the protection of Jesus Christ, covered by the grace his blood has purchased because we have a supernatural faith in God and his infallible and inerrant word. That's why we are saved. That's why we belong to him, because of the faith that God has brought about in our lives. Now, the scripture we're looking at today, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, is a reference to that biblical faith. The just shall live by faith. And it's important to us because it also 
is a part of God's word and his prophecy through the prophet Habakkuk to the the coming, actually, the judgment against the nation of Judah and judgment against the nation of Babylon in the 7th century B.C. Or actually, judgment on Babylon would be a little bit later than the 7th century, like the 6th century. In order to understand any scripture, folks, you always have to start out with the intention of the author. What is it God intended to the people who were hearing it for the first time? Because until you, you get an idea of that, you can't move on to what does it mean to me? That's application. What is the interpretation? What did it mean to the author? And that's what the word interpret actually means. To make plain the intent of the author. Somehow our courts have lost that somehow. As they think that interpreting the laws mean to make them relevant to modern society. Anyway, we won't talk about that. If you listen, and I encourage you to do so, listen to Pastor Xavier's study on this chapter. I think it's back in June of last year. Pastor Xavier taught Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He goes through and shows clearly how these verses are a reference to God's judgment on the Babylonian nation. We also know that the Bible teaches one single story from cover to cover. And that story is the fall and the redemption of man by the grace of God through the death of Christ on the cross. From Genesis 1-1 all the way through the end of the book of Revelation. We find it in every book of the Bible set forth by God's Holy Spirit. And Jesus, if you disagree with that, you got to argue with Jesus because he says exactly that in the book of Luke. As he's actually after the resurrection... He's going for a walk with this guy named Cleopas and another friend who we don't get his name. He's heading towards the village of Emmaus in Luke 24, 13 through 33. And in verse 27, Luke 24, 27, and beginning at Moses, that would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All the prophets, that would include the minor prophets in the book of Habakkuk, and all of the scriptures concerning himself. And of all the Bible studies that we have written down in the scripture, that's the one we didn't get. I would like to have the compact disc of that one. It'd be really nice. Pastor Xavier makes reference in his study back in June how this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, Hebrews 10.38. Now, each of those verses is used by the Lord to illustrate a different aspect of God's purpose at work in us and faith at work in our lives and, and through the life of the believer. So today, as we look at this verse in Habakkuk in the Old Testament, Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. We're going to examine it as a sort of parenthesis because we interpret the Old Testament by the New Testament. You're reading the New Testament. You're reading the Gospel of Matthew, and there are tons of Old Testament quotes in Matthew because Matthew was written to the Jews. And so they're very concerned about Old Testament connections. When you read an Old Testament verse in Matthew, go back and look it up. In Genesis, in Isaiah, in one of the other Old Testament books, because we interpret it 
through the perspective of the New Testament. We understand it in that way. And we believe that this verse has something to add to our understanding of God's plan and our salvation. Notice, Habakkuk 2.4 is divided into two sections. Uh, set down in comparison and contrast, actually even kind of in opposition to one another, just as Hebrew poetry is written. And so we will take a look at it from this view. First, the first part of verse 4, behold the proud. And then in contrast with that, the last part of verse 4, but the just. So we want to recognize that this verse from a Christian New Testament perspective is about our salvation. Both sides of the matter hinge on this idea of being right with God. That is, the just, those that are forgiven, those that are right in the sight of God, those people that are right. The the thing that the proud are excluded from and the thing that those who live by faith are attached to. It's really kind of interesting. We spend so much time and energy talking and thinking about the subject of being right before God, when it is something, and the Bible is very clear on this, that we can never even begin to approach in our own ability. At the same time, it's something we need more than life itself, so it's good that we spend our time considering it and thinking about it. So first of all, behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. Behold the proud, there is something wrong with him. What does it mean to not have an upright soul? I'm not sure. Exactly. I've never seen anybody's soul, so if your soul is sideways, God help you. I have no idea what that means. Um, But I do know from the scripture what pride is all about. The condition of pride. And I have to tell you, I think we can make a pretty solid case that self-centeredness, self-promotion, the ever-popular narcissism, self-will, self-ishness, I think you can make a pretty solid case that pride is is the common estate, the normal condition of humankind. It's the way that people are born. It's the way children are born. Now, you might, you might disagree, but nobody ever had to teach a child to be selfish. They, as soon as they're able to be anything, they've got selfishness down. And if you disagree, go find yourself a three-year-old, take two cookies, hand them to him, wait till he bites one, and then ask him to share and see what happens. He's going to walk over there, he's going to look at him, and he's going to share the one with the bite. He's going to give it to, here you go, I'm being generous. Have a nice day. I've got a whole cookie. That's reality. And, and, and we see it so clearly. Uh, another, okay, let's say, well, yeah, but that's when we were children. We're better now. Oh, are you? Okay, well, let me ask you a question. What is the opposite of me first? You first, right? No. You first is me second. The opposite of me first is me last. But your brain doesn't work that way, does it? Interesting. Can I ask you another personal question? Since you're, you know, you're not selfish like this. When was the last time you went to see a group photograph with yourself in it and didn't look for you first? You know? And of course, when you, when you were young, you went and looked, oh, you know, it's so nice looking, look at that. And now you go and you look and you say, I look better than that. I know I do. It's all about us, guys. Unfortunately, terrible thing. It shows up, this, this selfishness and pride is a very slippery thing. 
Just when you think you have victory over pride in your life, oh, look out. It's, trust me, it's just waiting to bite you. It's very complex. And it's kind of interesting the ways that it can show up in your life. You see, you don't have to stand up on a soapbox proclaiming that you're better than everyone to be proud. In fact, pride can be just as pronounced in someone that claims that they are the worst. They can never do anything right. I don't even know why God puts up with me. And you want to say, yeah, neither do I. Don't do that. Don't say that, by the way. <laughs> People seem, who seem to be truly disgusted with themselves. And I'm sure they can be terribly discouraged. And our failures are hard to swallow. But folks, the reality of the situation is that we're disturbed because we're not living up to what we know our true potential is. I'm really so much better than I look like or act like. And you know the reality, I am what I do. Second Corinthians, I'm sorry, First Corinthians 2.2, 2, the Apostle Paul, he says, I determined not to know anything among you but Christ Jesus and him crucified. That's it. And this is from a guy who knew it all. I know nothing. Well, what about people that want to take their own lives? And again, situation's very complex. And if, you know, you lived through junior high and high school, you probably considered suicide at some time. I know I did. Whenever a person is considering taking their own life, there are, there's huge spiritual warfare going on. Demonic fingerprints all over the whole situation. But from a human perspective... Consider Ephesians 5.29 says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And our problem in wanting to take our own life is that people can't get over their own failure, how others have failed them, how devastated they are by themselves, and other people just don't seem to appreciate or understand them in the way that they should be appreciated. And a whole other laundry list of stuff. But the bottom line is it's all about me. When the real issue is that we need to get over ourselves. We need to get past ourselves and get our attention on the Lord and on his words. It may be from the supernatural view that pride is best identified in the person that is determined that they don't need to be saved. What does that say about you as a human being? You don't need, you don't need salvation. It means, first of all, that you're confused. You may be sincere. You may be what we would consider a good moral pagan. Lord knows I have known non-Christians that on a moral basis compare way more favorably than I do. People that are better people than I am who don't believe in Christ. And I'm sure you know people that fit that description. But the reality is they don't understand the nature of what sin is. You see, guys, God is perfect. And his kingdom is 100% perfect. And if God starts bringing 99% perfect into his kingdom, he's making his kingdom 1% evil by definition. That can't happen. The blood of Christ is the only thing that can prepare any person for eternity. God knows who we are. Psalm 39, 5 says, Indeed, you've made my days as a handbreadth, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is vapor. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. They heap up riches, and they do not know who will gather them. 
When any person decides in themselves, they have no need to entertain God's offer to help them. They've made the greatest proclamation of pride that could ever be made. In fact, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that they have trampled underfoot the death of Christ as calling it an unclean thing. That's some very scary territory. Psalm 138 verse 6 says, Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. The people of this world don't see it this way. Well, how do they see it? Malachi chapter 3 verse 15. So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. And we see a lot of that. It's reality. But it's not going to last. We see a lot of prosperity to those who reject the truth. And folks, you and I, we need to guard our hearts lest we become envious And buy into that lie. This life is very short. I have better things to do than to spend my labor for a boat or a timeshare vacation somewhere. Let's not forget who we are and why we are here. Matthew 23, 12 says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And our Lord is our example in all these things. No person has ever humbled himself to the degree or in the way that the Lord has to reach us in this world. In fact, the reality of it, the, the, le- the level to which Christ humbled himself is a thing that is way beyond our understanding. And we may never really be able to fully understand what he did. The man who sees himself as sufficient for the challenges of his life is either blind to the world that he lives in and to himself his own faults and failure and mortality or has been in a very protected state. This is one of the things. And, you know, this coming weekend, the youth group is going on this retreat. They're going up to Mile High Pines. They'll be up there Saturday, Sunday, and back on President's Day on Monday. Pray for these kids, you guys. Sincerely, make it a point to pray for them every day. Because a lot of these kids in junior high and high school, some of them have had a really rough time. Okay? But there's a group of them, and maybe the majority of them, that have had such a cushy time in their life where things have been so easy for them, they really don't see what they need God for to be able... They've not run into that wall to say, wow, I need help, and I need help from someone who is much larger and much more powerful than I am. Adult life has a way of illustrating that for you really powerfully and clearly. I need help. You know, you'd see it real quick, you know. But um, for these kids... They need to understand, and only the Lord can make that clear. You know, when, when we go out in Old Town Pasadena passing out tracts, really trying to engage people in conversation on a Friday night, the most common response that you hear from people is, uh, I'm, I'm good. It's okay, I, I'm good. And you so, because they don't know the Bible, you so, no, there's none good. You, wanna, you just want to, you know, uh, Luke 18, 19, Jesus said, Why do you call me good? There's none good but one. That's God. To share the gospel with someone is a a humbling thing. And it's one of the reasons that it's difficult. They're not going to like it. If you share the gospel and people really get it and understand what you're telling. Wait a minute. You're telling me I deserve to go to hell? Let's take this outside right now. I'm seriously. uh, If they're going to get it, they'll understand. It is... 
it is humbling and it's difficult to do. But generally, you know, if you're like me, you want to tell people things they want to hear. You want to please people. But that's deceitful. And when you're talking about salvation in the worst way, if I'm giving people the impression that they're okay without Christ, that is the worst possible. Truth is is stark and the truth is glaring and it's powerful. The first time you heard the gospel, did you respond positively? Oh, what a nice thing. I can remember having people tell me about Jesus Christ and feeling the knot in my stomach. Because it really bothered me. It really bothered me. And I'm sure the look on my face and my response was not real encouraging to whoever was talking to me. Unless I'm willing to humble myself, God's truth will have very little traction in my life. James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. But, and then we get the contrast to the last half of the verse, but the just shall live by his faith. So first of all, let's take some time and examine this person who is not characterized by their pride. And again, that's not to say that they are exempt from the opportunity or the temptation of pride. It's there for everybody. But we want to have a better idea of the specifics of this thing that God is actually achieving and attempting in our lives This process of changing us into the image of Jesus Christ, which is the big picture. This is what's happening in your life. And I know that you don't see it. Some of you sitting here this morning or listening over the Internet are really discouraged at the progress you're making as a believer. You're looking at yourself and you're thinking, I'm not seeing it. How is God changing me into the image of Christ? And you are somewhat hopeless. And let me tell you something. Like in a marriage or any kind of a friendship, when you are hopeless, all the initiative goes out of the equation. Oh, what's a use? I am telling you, I can't keep trying to be a Christian. It's, it's hopeless. You know, I messed up again. I'm an idiot. You know, and, and some of that's true. But, but, I mean, you know, I don't lie to you. But the bottom line is God is doing little things inside of you that you don't even see. He is doing, he's changing and affecting your nature. Uh, Pastor Chuck Smith has a book. I think it's Effective Prayer Life. Some years ago I read it. And there's a story about a guy who was a naval petty officer, I think. And the guy had your classical naval vocabulary. And uh, so he's very colorful all the time. And he he became a believer and he was very troubled because his language was really terrible. And then he was at home one day. His wife said he came in the house... Uh, bleeding, and he was laughing hysterically and just jumping up and down and everything. And his wife's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know what's going on? And he said, I just ran into a tree and hit my head, and guess what I didn't do? He didn't, he didn't use interesting and colorful language. And he was just, he was like, God is changing me. This is amazing. I'm so happy. Bleeding all over the floor. And, but, you know, what a wonderful thing it is. And, you know, seriously, if you're discouraged about your walk with the Christ, Ask the Lord to show you. Lord, show me. Give me hope to make that effort, to put out the initiative, to do the little things that I can do to see your hand at work in my life. The big picture is we're being changed into the image of Jesus Christ, whether we can see it or not. The just are not people who have attained to a godly spirituality. So the other part of you here who think that you've already arrived, uh, 
Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. So obviously, the juster people that recognize, they got a long way to go. And then understanding that is an important because it identifies us in humility, the juster people that are dependent upon the Lord, hour by hour, day by day, sometimes minute by minute. We need that help. We just don't expect to find themselves, wake up one day and find themselves in the completed condition. I'm not going to wake up next week and have it all wired, you know. And again, every once in a while, if I start to think in that way, God gives me a wake-up call. Being dependent upon the Lord is the very best situation for me. You know, for years in my Christian walk, I went like a yo-yo, back and forth between, oh man, I'm a wonderful Christian. Oh, I'm not even saved. I'm, I'm going to hell for... I am a wonderful Christian. I'm going to hell. I'm a wonderful... I'm, and seriously, and that is... It's not what the Lord intended for us. And it really... We so need to be dependent upon God, hour by hour, day by day, to let go of the things in the past, to keep our eyes focused on the Lord, get our eyes off of ourselves... It's it's like driving when they teach you how to drive and you look 200 yards in front of the car so that you're not going oh bub 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 and back and forth all the time. You you there's a little more stability. God help us. People that have this idea of being in debt that it's a bad thing and obviously it can be. But a lot of that depends upon who you're in debt to and what the debt is, what you owe. If you were in debt to Abraham Lincoln, I think it might be something you would put on your business cards. I owe Abraham Lincoln. You know, it would be great. And the same thing is true with our debt to the Lord. The debt that we owe Christ, we can never repay. It is a debt that will hold us to him throughout eternity under the best possible circumstances. We actually belong to him because we are just by the grace that he has given in the blood of the cross. And this justness, this righteousness is imputed to us. It's given to us through no device that we, you know, imagined or put together, contrived. So the scripture uses the word imputed. And actually in Romans chapter 4, it talks about this whole situation, actually starting off with the example of, of Abraham. Romans 4.23 says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised for our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, which that's Romans 5, 1 right there. That's about as close as you're going to get in the scripture to justification by faith. Justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into his grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of of the glory of God. So, just as God gave this righteousness to Abraham because he believed God, same way, God has called us to be just, right, clean. He's imputed this. He's given it to us. He's made us part of his family. Do we deserve this? No. In no way. And it's important that we remember that. It keeps us from the attitude or it keeps us in that attitude of dependence upon the Lord which is exactly where I want to be. I know some of you here today are wondering, you know, why is my life so hard? And I don't have an answer for you. I don't know the answer to that. But I can tell you a couple of things. 
I know one thing, that the hardship that the Lord allows into our lives is, is necessary. It's very necessary. And it actually may be the thing that keeps us in a situation of dependence upon him. You see, God is in the process of saving us every day, one day at a time, because the world we live in is very treacherous. And I have this huge target on my back, and you have a huge target on your back as well. And the issue of faith is interesting because it's always changing for me, and my faith has a different application from one day to the next. Very easy for me to have great faith when I'm sitting alone in my home, reading my Bible in the morning. But when I have to get up and go to a hospital into the ICU ward and try and share the gospel with somebody who's not a believer who's going to pass away, yeah, it's very different. It's very different. And my faith has to be effective in that situation. I'd like to suggest to you today that it's really not an amount of faith that God is looking for. We, it's really the way that we look at it. We ask, you know, the Lord to increase our faith. I need more faith. But I want you to notice the disciples said to Jesus in Luke chapter 17, verse 5, and what his response was. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, a mustard seed is a very small thing. It's a thing that maybe you couldn't even see from about 10 feet. It's tiny, tiny. So Jesus is not saying, okay, well, you need more faith. No, it's not, it's, it's not the, the amount of my faith. It's the object of my faith. What is my faith in? The problem for me is when my faith is in my ability. Well, you know, if I prayed more and read more and, and spent more time at church, or maybe if I got involved in ministry more, then I, and you know what? Those things are useful because they put me in line with the scripture. But my faith, the object of my faith has to be him, has to be him. When I'm spending time in the scripture and spending time in prayer, involved in fellowship with believer, it helps because those things bring my connection with the Lord into focus. I'm less distracted by the world. I'm more attached to his purpose. And he is the object of my faith. And he is able to get it done, whatever it is. Notice the end of the verse here, the end of verse four. The just shall live by faith. Am I living by faith? And again, this is not a thing that I can just say. Well, you know, I went forward in an altar call a few years ago, and yes, I live by faith. I attend a good church where they teach the Bible. So yeah, I live by faith. Or it's a matter of abiding. It's a connectedness to the source of necessity, by necessity, not of convenience or occasion. And you know, I have to tell you, I worry that so much of the church in the Western world are people who understand the ideas of faith intellectually, and maybe they have an experience with faith. Maybe they even live around faith, but do they live by faith? And what does that mean to me? How do I do that today? One way or another, it's, it is human nature to doubt to doubt the Lord. I mean, it's what we do. We doubt other people. We doubt God. In moments of rare sanity, we even doubt ourselves. 
this is why it is so important for us to understand the Lord, understand who he is and his intention, his purpose for us. And not just intellectually, but personally, by our own experience. Because when, when I have experience of trusting God and putting my confidence in him, then I learn. In a way, you know, you, you can share with me all day long the miracles God's done in your life. I can understand that, but it doesn't help me in the same way. Nine months and two days after I got married, my wife had a baby. Really, no, it's true. And, and he was 10 weeks early. He weighed two pounds and 10 ounces and then proceeded to lose about eight ounces too. But um, um, he was in uh, neonatal intensive care for a long time and then was kept in the hospital for about 50-some days. He was in the hospital before we, he eventually got up to about five pounds. They let us take him home. And the hospital bill for that and my wife's C-section, you know, you think if you had a two-pound baby, you'd be able to, never mind. <laughs> anyway, but seriously, the, the whole hospital bill for the whole thing was about five and a half times my annual salary, what I made in a year. And... Um, we were currently living in an apartment attached to the garage of my grandparents in East L.A. So, but God took care of it. He took care of the whole thing. I had to pay like $500 when I got my son out of the hospital. And we were all, I mean, it was amazing. It was wonderful. But wow, talk about building a confidence in God's ability to overcome problems. It's powerful stuff. But what happens if you have a problem and you run in the opposite direction? You never get that. You've got to trust him. You've got to put yourself into the situation and be confident of his ability in order to see the reality of what he wants to do. And that, that's important. That's powerful. God's purpose is to engage us in that which is outside of our, our comfort zone. It's why he works so diligently to move us outside of our comfort zone. And we're fighting him every step of the way. No, no, I don't want to go there. Think about it. As long as you're operating in your comfort zone, as long as God is calling to do you do, calling you to do what you are perfectly pleased to do, what kind of a surrender is that? How is that, you know, fitting in with Romans 12, 1 and 2? Offering yourself as a living sacrifice. How does it, how does it fit into deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. And you see, that is exactly what Jesus did every single day. In Luke twenty-two forty-two, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And he says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Three times. He didn't want to die. But three times he asked God to take it away. Where was his faith? Send the Father. Let your will be done. That's sacrifice. You see, folks, God is completely unwilling to leave us the way we are. Thank goodness. He wants that new creation from 2 Corinthians 5.17. But that doesn't happen with us following the path of least resistance, does it? One of the really amazing things about the Lord's work in us is the lengths that God will go to to help us catch a vision for our lives. Read the book of Jonah. 
He wanted Jonah to get the vision. Eventually he got it. He figured it out. But wow, what a trip. He wants to get us to invest in his purpose. He's not going to force our choice. But he can certainly get your attention if he needs to. And he always has an answer for our situation. And that answer, it always starts right here from where you are at this very moment. Right now, today. Maybe you missed the turnoff last month, last week, yesterday, this morning before you came to church. Right now. Right now. God's purpose starts for you. To follow his leading. To put his program into purpose. Because he's the answer. He wants to begin that work in each of us. A work of connection, a relationship that he provides, the direction, the understanding that we need to live by faith one day at a time. We're not always going to understand God's purpose. Folks, that's okay. It doesn't make, it doesn't make things any easier for us. But it, this is not about easy. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't, lean on, don't even lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, all of your ways. And he will direct your path. I read an article recently about a pastor in China who had been imprisoned for many years. And upon his eventual release at the end of his sentence, he was talking to another gospel worker. And he, he, said, he said this. He said, you know, I'm happy that you and the others tried to arrange for my release. But in one way, I'm happy that you failed. If you had been successful, there would be no church in that prison today. Something to consider. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Let's all agree to be completely unreasonable in the best possible way. Father, we we come before you in the name of Jesus, Lord. We are so grateful, Lord, for the grace that you have set upon our lives, Lord, for the the door that you've opened for us. And, Father, the, the goodness that you've shown us, Lord, in these days. And, Lord, our prayer today is that your Holy Spirit would provide the wisdom that we need to go forward from here. Lord, we don't know what the future holds. You are our confidence because, Lord, you hold the future. You, you hold it, Father, and you hold our lives in your hands. And, Lord, we want, Father, to have your peace, that peace that passes all understanding. I know this morning, Father, there are people here listening that are overcome, Lord, with concern and worry over the situation of their life, financial hardship, some with medical problems, Lord, and many other things. Father, we just want to lift those up to you right now. We want to ask for your spirit to intervene in a powerful way, Lord, to provide that answer that we need. Lord, give us the peace in our hearts. Lord, teach us to trust you through these difficult times. And Lord, let your Holy Spirit guide us, Lord. That whatever this world may think, faith in Christ is always reasonable. And Father, that's what we want. We want to walk with you. As we're all praying together and every head bowed, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we, we desperately want to give you an opportunity to surrender your life into his hands. If the Lord has spoken to you, 
If God has spoken to you this morning from his word and you have a desire to give yourself to Christ, I'm going to pray a prayer of surrender. And if it is your desire to give your life to Christ, I ask you to repeat that prayer after me and begin this journey with God and his purpose for you. Repeat this prayer after me if you want to give your life to Christ. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me a new life. In Jesus' name I pray.